Hello and welcome to Eat or No Lit. My name is Nick Argeris and this week I'm looking for the best corporate drama book. True high literature to help me are true high school English teachers, Ian and Joe. I feel like you're not selling it enough. I feel like corporate drama is like, yes. hey, I know that you think of corporations these are like boring, stodgy places filled with like politics and water coolers, but like serious stuff happens. Like like drama happens, backstabbing and double dealing and and uh betrayals. Like these wow. things happen in corporations. Yeah. This isn't just memos is what you're saying. No, Joe. it's not all memos. Although I will say in the book I read this week, uh, Disney War, uh, written in 2005 by a guy named James B. Stewart, there is a memo that plays a pretty pivotal role. <laughs> so nice. some okay. of the drama is memo related. These will be a memo, memo based books. Mem- yeah. My, okay. Joe Holshue, high huh. school English teacher. Yeah, Disney what, whatever. War. Yeah. Okay. Get to the book. <laughs> Uh, howdy, Nick. Howdy, Joe. And how do you deal with heads? This week, my name is Dr. Ian DeYoung. I'm a titan of finance and a king of Wall Street right. and also a high school English teacher. And I'm here to invest my time in your options. That's good. Time to short your CDOs, if you know what I mean. <laughs> you get it? I brought a book called I The Big Short. I think we're having an issue with your microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cutting it out. Um, yeah, my book is my book has a subtitle, Inside the Doomsday Machine, which I think is necessary. I don't know. I feel like when you're dealing with corporate drama books, you got to kind of zazz them up a little mm, bit. And spice it, yeah. The cover, the title, like something to say, this is not going to be boring. Cause oh. Ideally, ideally... There's blood, right? Because on the you know, cover, yeah. yeah, I think that's what general corporate real. drama lacks, right? Is death, right? To just give it some true stakes, right? right? Like it, it, I think it has the ability to feel petty because, like, we've read right. books about like war, we've read post-apocalypse on here, and it's like, yeah. oh yeah, corporate drama. Um, Ian, what is on the cover of your book? Because How much my blood? book, my book has uh, no blood, but it has Mickey Mouse's head built out of three bombs. So like, like three bombs, de- his decapitated head. No, just a, a, like oh. a facsimile of his head. I see. Mm-hmm. Ian, uh, any heads or blood on your book? No, there is what looks to be maybe a, is that a fish hook? And then it's got a roll of cash in it. So cash is good too. But cash yeah. is to be expected in corporate drama. That's not mm. particularly surprising. I really am looking for some blood on the cash. Well, I mean, like my copy, I accidentally got a paper cut and then I personally bled on my copy. Oh, if that's right. B-Y-O-B. That should do it. May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely <laughs> enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. <laughs> who, who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. <laughs>, 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 <laughs> This is what a very exciting week. <laughs> I should have uh, wore a suit. I thought of, yeah, I thought of wearing, wearing like a $3,000 Italian suit. Right. Well, welcome, Litheads, to You Don't Know Lit, a weekly, as we call it, strongly podcast where every... Uh, we should also say that, uh, Joe, your book was recommended by Lithead. My book it was, was recommended by Lithead Rocchio. I'm not sure if Rocchio, Rocchio, Rock. I think I, it's Rocchio. I, I really like Rocchio. You think it's Rocchio. I yeah, think it's Rossio. Let's just call listening. him Rock. Rock. Okay. Yeah, the Rock. Rossio, yeah. if you're listening and we're doing it wrong, you should absolutely sue us. 
Yeah, well, uh, Rossio, Rossio recommended the, this book this week. He recommended, uh, they recommended Disney War. And and uh, it was a super good recommendation. I think we might have come up with corporate drama. Like, we, it, like mm-hmm. Disney War was the recommendation. Yeah, it was such a good recommendation that I thought, make a whole theme out of it. Make a theme. Yep. So, Litheads, if you've read a good book recently, please recommend it. Um, well, Welcome. So you don't know Litter Weekly, as we call it, Strongly Podcast, where every week we pick a theme, or you do, or books are recommended. Some, at some point, the theme is selected. You incite us. I feel like we've been incited to this yes. theme. Where you verbally incite us, and Joe and Ian bring two book recommendations. Two very inciting books. I'm pretty excited about my book. And there's some rules, rule number, just like any good corporate drama, there's rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, rule number one, only unavoidable spoilers. Rule number two, omit needless words, Joseph. I'm going to need this word. Joseph. Thank you. Rule number two, some point number, day. <laughs> rule number three, only winning matters. I'm ready to win, you guys. Yeah. I'm ready to sort of um, crush the competition. Right. And offer um, a buyout that you can't really refuse. And yes. then take you to court for all of your assets. I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to yes man my way all the way to the top. Oh, good. Mm. And Joe, what is your corporate role that you're going to play this week? Um, I am ready to stand at the top of this corporation like a okay. like a like a tyrannical king and fire oh. anybody who threatens my power. Oh, that oh, is the, what yeah, I am you're the bully. Got it. Yes. You must eliminate all competition. That's gotta uh-huh. be the first Absolutely. rule. Um Joe, tell me what your book is about. All right, Nick. In 1985, Disney was floundering. What we think of today as a cultural juggernaut was moribund. Its animation department was stagnant. Its live action films were bust. The only part of the entire company that made any money at all was the theme parks. Enter Michael Eisner, the man who ostensibly turned the company around. This book takes place over the 20 tumultuous years he sat down at the helm of Disney, and it's far from the happiest place on earth. It's filled with boardroom drama, double dealing machinations, deceit, lies, and one man's almost maniacal clinging to power. It is a 600-page page-turner, 2005's Disney War. It's real thesaurusy, real thesaurusy. Now that I mm. read that, now mm. that I read that aloud, I mean machinations, moribund, mm. juggernaut. Moribund is a great word. Did you write that, or did you just steal that from the internet? I did write it. I did write it. Yeah, and it's uh, Nick. I do like the name moribund because people misuse it all the time. Like they use moribund to mean like this thing is dead. That is right. not what moribund means. Moribund means this thing is at death's door. Like it is limping along. I've never so heard like it in, in the my Princess life. Bride, it's it's mostly dead. It's mostly dead. Thank you. Yep. Ian, what is your book about? <laughs> in 2008, Wall Street imploded. Multiple major firms went bankrupt, failed, or sold themselves, and these effects rippled through the economy with aftershocks still felt today. It was an unforeseeable event, we were told, but that wasn't true. This week, I read the true story of the people who predicted the 2008, 2007, 2008 crash, how they got rich from Wall Street stupidity, and how they discovered the dark secret at the heart of the global financial system. Read on to find out. I brought The Big Short this week by Michael Lewis. Ian, is Christian Bale on your book cover, or was this? did this come out... As mentioned, my book cover is just uh, a nice kind of gray gradient with a uh, fish hook and some money on and it. Some of the, um, the book came out 
surprisingly, the book came out before the movie. Before. But, okay. Wait, did it come out before the big short happened? Because that would be amazing. Like, did it come out before um, the events? I mean, the book is all about book. predicting the big short. So I think wow. that would be pretty incredible. It came out about a year and a half after uh, the crash. Uh, yeah, let's start with that. Um, you ever heard of a little, little movie called Moneyball? Mm-hmm. I have he seen wrote, it. He yeah. wrote the book for Moneyball. You ever yeah. heard of a movie called The Blind Side? Yeah. He wrote the book for The Blind Side. Yeah. His thing since like the year 2000, 2002 when, when he wrote Moneyball um, is basically doing popular exposés of the way the way um like simplifying complexity for the the, the pop the public and yeah. in such a way that that it invites movies to be made a successful like these That's are good shocking. these are well-known movies like if you went to a publisher with the idea it's like hey i want to tell the story about how the oakland a's um did some weird stuff in their scouting department and made yeah. a really good baseball team through like analytics they'd be like that book sounds terrible yeah. <laughs> that sounds like an awful idea yeah it's it's yeah i don't so know who, tell us about this guy he's, he's almost uh, journalistic right yes he is he is a journalist he started off actually um as um his, his dad was a corporate attorney and his mom was an activist which is just a beautiful a beautiful Combo. uh combination Combo. there <laughs> he started off on wall street and he worked on wall street for a while and he was like I got to get out of here. This is, this is terrible. Um, and so he, he got out, he wrote a very well-known book. How much money 19- did he make before he got out and judged it? <laughs> um, it's not clear. It's not clear, but I, I, I imagine he, he left when he was pretty, he was pretty young still. And when he, yeah. when he wrote his first book, which is called liars poker, um, about, um, mortgage backed bonds he wrote this in 1989 and wall street kind of turned on him and so he became kind of persona non grata after that um he just kept writing books and he has been he's become very very successful kind of the the name in doing as i say this kind of thing um he just just wrote a book about sam bankman fried and ftx And that was like a New York Times, maybe number one bestseller. I mean, I think it came out like during the Sam Brinkman Freed implosion. It was very well timed. What is this called? It's Uh, called Going Going Infinite. Going Infinite. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So so it's it's, pretty good reviews. He's he's I take that back. (laughs) (laughs) He's doing he's doing something which um, he's kind of at the top of his game on. He's um, uh, or top of. He's at the top of the game. He's he's the one doing this. If you want someone to to explain complex kind of arcane pieces, yeah. um, you call in you call in Lewis. The Big Short is a great example of that. At least the movie. It's you still watch it and you're like, I, I think I yes. I think this, I is, this is one of my talking I points. Certainly understand. You're like in theory what they're saying. I, I, totally I think I understand sixty percent of this, and I but, can yeah. tell that's all I'm going to get. And that's good enough. So tell us what it's about, I guess, for somebody who isn't familiar with the financial crisis of 2008. <laughs> okay. So um, I, I spent a good amount of time on this because this is kind of important. Lenders started giving too many mortgages to people who couldn't pay them off. So this is the foundation of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And these are mortgages which are given to people with low credit scores. These are kind of yeah. fraudulently built. So you get like a really good uh, interest rate at the beginning and then gradually or quickly mm-hmm. it jumps from like 6% to 15%. 
giving it to people that they openly knew were not going yes. to be able to and, to pay off these loans and pushing people to refinance take out their equity and get a new mortgage so the, right. some of the shocking moments are like he he, he talks about um uh, a migrant worker uh, a mexican strawberry picker in california who owns a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar house and this isn't 750k in 2024 dollars this is 750k in like two thousand three dollars right that's um, a ten million dollar house right now right so <laughs> so it's it's that's the the foundation of this and that part is bonkers at a certain point big wall street investment banks banks merrill lynch goldman sachs lehman brothers bear stearns the kind of the names that you know started investing in these subprime mortgages and then they started basically doing fraud to make more money off of them and that's the kind of the conf- confusing part which i won't get into they do fraud like he goes to to lengths to explain he does a pretty good job yeah how it's fraud but basically Mm -hmm. they do some big fraud and a very few people see this and they see that this is not going to stick and they begin betting they begin saying uh we think this is not going to work out we think there's going to be a crash coming and they take out insurance policies on the banks so that if the banks go bust the people who buy the insurance get a bunch of money which can we just talk about like what a crazy bet that is oh, it's yeah. like it's like hey i think lehman brothers this massive investment bank that has been doing Good. what they want on wall street for the last 25 years i think they have made such a bad bet that they are yep. going to go under like like their assets will be gone i'll put money on that that's nuts but the whole the whole basis is like they're not betting like they figure it out there right. is math 100 it's a lock right it's- that's that's the thing that's the thing he's got a really good piece towards the end of the book where he's like investment and banking are it's not like uh, sorry investment and betting are kind of like sort of the same thing it's a spectrum it's a continuum they have similarities um they have differences but i think um this is a story just to pause in the the story because the story isn't done this is a story about trust and the the people who see what's going to happen they they trust themselves they trust their models they trust their instinct they trust that they know what's going to go down even though everyone else is trusting the myth of the big bank and the banks themselves are like yeah sure (laughs) buy this insurance on our fail we're not gonna freaking fail yeah Yeah. because they see it as free money you got to pay a premium if you're buying this insurance so they're making you know two million dollars a year on this premium they think they're never going to fail. Who, who's insuring this? Uh, the, uh, actually, AIG is insuring yeah, this. Like a massive right. insurer yes. that the government famously bailed out um, mm-hmm. after Lehman Brothers capped, after maybe Bear Stearns fell. I, yep. I forget exactly. Yep. Yep. Um, like it was a big problem because AIG was the one insuring this and the federal government stepped in and they were like, nope, we will not let AIG fail. And right. they bailed out that, right. uh, that particular insurer. I, wow. uh, as the, as the elder statesman on this podcast, I do remember the financial crisis of 2008. Right. I actually bought my first house, um, right after this. And it was oh, an right. amazing time. Great right. timing. Well, that's, that's the thing. If, if you are in a good place, you can make money off of this. And, and these guys did because the banks were selling the, the banks were just fine with this, with this bet happening. They thought they weren't going to fail. Um, because banks don't fail something this big can't fail too big right. to fail. Um, and then they started failing really, really hard. Um, <laughs> and some of the most dramatic pieces of this are when, like, there's a guy, um, there's a guy, there's a meeting, a kind of climactic boardroom meeting, and there's a... Uh, oh, is there a memo in it? 
an investor. No, there's an investor though. And people have blackberries. There's an investor and he's like giving this speech about how I would never, I would, I would never short Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch is incredible. I love, like I would go out and buy. And as this is happening, the other people aren't listening to him. They're on their blackberries, like watching Merrill Lynch stock fall. Mm -hmm. $70, $60, $40, $30. And then afterwards, after this guy is done, um, his enemy, like one of our heroes gets up and he's like, uh, so would you still buy it even though it's been falling throughout the whole time you're talking like, yeah i'll go out and buy some now um it's just it's happening it's it's in he real did time not. he did <laughs> not but, yes okay so have you seen the movie no, I haven't. So it actually, that actually strikes me how, like how cinematic this book must be, because I have seen this movie and the scene that Ian just described is a famous scene yeah. in this movie, right? Yeah. Like, like Steve Carell is in the audience. He is yep. roasting this guy. Like yep. um, the, the, <laughs> Steve's as there. he's giving this speech, <laughs> as this guy is giving the speech, the auditorium that he is speaking into is clearing out as people are like running to their phones to make phone calls and things. Yep. Um, so it sounds cinematic. Ian. Yeah. He, he does a really nice job with the build. And then when we get to the climax, it's incredible. Go ahead, Nick. Okay. Well, I was going to ask what's the difference between the book and the movie. I'm guessing there's a lot more detail. Tell us about like our cast of characters here. Like yeah. who, who are these guys? Because I'm sure the movie doesn't really explain who they are very well. Um, so so I, I did some reading around the movie. If I'd had time, I, I would have watched it. But but um, uh, the the movie does kind of map on pretty clearly to the book because after Moneyball, I want to say, uh, Lewis said, "I'm going to get really more, much more involved with um, my the way my my books." <laughs> Time to get rich. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, for sure. Uh, he also, I think, he's invested in the stories he's telling. No pun intended. And he wants to make sure they're told appropriately. So, um, yeah, he's kind of like his counterpart is Adam McKay, who directed yep. both of these yep. movies. Yep. He is that pop culture director mm-hmm. who's like, "I'm going to yep. take these subjects and make them." Like, right. I'm going to add humor to them. I'm going to make right. them interesting. And and, and, th- and theoretically, it's trustworthy at a certain point. Like, one of the one of the criticisms of, of Lewis's new book, yeah. mm-hmm. one of the criticisms of, criticisms of Lewis's new book is that he is too nice to Sam Bankman-Fried. Like, he's not yeah. critical enough. And this is the risk. Um, you got to keep batting a thousand. But um, the, the, the movie is funny, right? It's kind of funny. Yeah, Michael yeah, Scott's it, in it. Yeah. Oh, it's incredibly super. It's got funny. Yeah, it's got Michael Scott right at the, at the height of his powers. Um, mm-hmm. the the book is the book is not really funny. The book is more kind of kind of gripping. So, um, there are <laughs> yeah, uh, because like well, <laughs> people are losing everything, and I yeah. think there's a desire the to be like are being destroyed. Holy crap! I can't believe this. This is so bonkers. I have to laugh because there's no other appropriate response. But but the the book is the book is really um. The book is really like, here are these people who are kind of oddballs, kind of kind of on the outside. So you've got um, uh, an, uh, an ex-doctor. He used to be a doctor and then he got into investing. He is later discoveries. He has Asperger's and that explains a lot to him. He's like, oh, that's why. <laughs> that's pretty. Oh, right. OK, that maybe the sense. book is funny. <laughs> His name is Michael and Michael is very not Michael Scott. Michael is very like. Um, kind of abrasive and his investors are like what are you doing with our money and he's like shut up i'm winning you <laughs> shut up i'm winning you money leave me alone scoreboard um, that's what he says he's like uh can i allow me to point to the scoreboard it does not matter what um, i'm doing with your money here is your return there's a couple of a couple of like 
new investors who sort of see things that nobody else can see. They don't have much money, but they're like, this is how we make our millions or billions. Um, so we follow them. They're not really in the the scene, but but we get to see how they they progress. There is a guy who's a, a lifer, um, the, the played by Steve Carell in the movie. And this guy is just sort of like cynical. He's seen it all and he hates it all. And he's like, this is crap. So this cast of outsiders, they're um, interesting. They're uh, abrasive. They say things that nobody else wants to hear. They're very like self mm, self confident. They're like, yeah, this is legit, and they 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 follow their 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 trust in their own uh, models, their own uh, conclusions. Um, we don't get the question. The question really isn't will this person be right about the financial crisis because we know they are. We're reading this after the financial crisis happens. Rather, it's like, will this person be vindicated? Will they make money, or will they? Be, even though they see the truth, will they be caught up by the, the breakdown of the machine and kind of destroyed in the process? Right. So it's not even like, you know, there's this element of dramatic irony there where it's like, we know how this ends. Well, at least we know the broad strokes of how this ends. But these individual <clears throat> stories are like, we know that this guy yep. is right. Yep. He's going to get screwed anyway. Right. Like, yeah, how is the right. system going to screw him anyway? Right. right? Yep. So it's like yep. this incredible tension that you feel because. A, you know how it ends, and B, like you're you're like morally on these guys' side, right? right? Like the people that they are against are bad guys. Yeah. Is there anything worth learning besides the broad strokes? Do you know what I mean? Like, is there yeah. like is it like obviously you're not rereading this book, right? I, I've rewatched the movie. You know, like I, <laughs> I feel oh, like okay. I, this, this uh, is that, this is like, shocking because this is like informational. You, yeah, you would think it's like. If you want to understand this piece of American recent American history, you read this and then you're you're good, you're done. But I think I think there's more complexity than that. There's I, I think rereading this, I would if I ever had a chance to reread books, which I don't because of this <laughs> which podcast, is not a thing that we do. I, believe it or not, I think I think yeah, a different Ian, different uh, Earth Two Ian. I think I I would reread this um, because there are pieces that I I would get maybe 70 percent on a reread and i think i think marginal that, incremental growth welcome to our corporate episode growth. yeah <laughs> yeah and i think too what it's the kind of story when we get to the secret at the heart of of wall street it's the kind of story that we need to be reminding ourselves of so the big reveal in this book is that most of the people in charge of big decisions on wall street are idiots wow. complete and total morons and they're financially rewarded for being idiots they make stupid stupid dangerous you might even say evil decisions well they're smart in a different way right they're like the, the yeah, intelligence well <laughs> i don't even think so i don't even think this is their money smart i don't even think this is this is failing up this is this is um people wanting to believe the desire for belief they want to believe that these people the, the ceos are are cutthroat and brilliant but when you talk to the ceos the ceos don't know what's going on in these markets people give the authority figures this aura of um competence which in mm -hmm. fact they don't really turns out have 
Well, which, by the way, is probably one of like the really drawing things of Ian's book here, because like as a reader, you want to feel smarter than these big bank walls, you know, mm-hmm. than these fat mm-hmm. cats on Wall Street. Like you want to think that these guys are idiots. Like you get some shot in Freud there. You get some vindictive pleasure in being like, I knew it. I knew. I absolutely knew it. I'd be all on. Here's, and here's the, my mortgage payment. <laughs> like this book is so well written. It is just I, I, I my line this week, people asked me when I was reading and it was like. I'm reading about uh, financial crises and I didn't realize it could be so riveting. This is so clear. And so he he does such a good job kind of pulling the story, the human story out of uh, what could be a mass of jargon and complexity. Um, this is it's not just that this is naturally opaque, not just that this this market, the bond market and the subprime mortgage thing was kind of accidentally like oh well it's just super complex no it's designed to be opaque it's designed to confuse and obfuscate and what he does is he cuts through that and you read this and you do end up knowing things not just about um not just about that specific historical event but about the way that the about the culture of the culture of wall street and the culture of greed the culture of bets and the culture of stupidity was a good book though Good, I loved it. Good stuff. I loved yeah. it. I, I learned I learned so much. I would like to find ways to bring his other books because yeah. it's the kind of thing it's not even it's not even secret learning. He kind of tells you up front, like, yeah, you're gonna learn stuff and, and you're gonna like it. It um, strikes me as he strikes me as a writer where it's like you like in order to take these big complex things and make them digestible, you have to take certain like um like almost like like when a documentary filmmaker has to take an opinion on certain things. Yeah. Like right. he, yeah. you have to trust him at some level and yep. realize that he is summing things up into bite-sized sound bites yeah, yeah. so like yeah. there's a lot there ha- you have to trust him quite a bit and like right. like you have to trust that editor you have to trust the guy yeah. making that decision absolutely disney war which is one word. Disney War, one word with a capital W in the middle of it. Yeah. So uh, James B. Stewart, the author, does he just not like spaces? What's going on here? Yeah, I think it's just really catchy, right? Like, I think it's like Disney War, right? And two words is pretty cool, but one word is like, it's a thing. It's too, st- too much Star Wars, maybe. This was, yeah. this was almost 20 years ago, and Disney was a different place 20 years ago. Disney was not the, the superpower media mogul. It used to be one word. Well, yeah. and one thing that I learned from this book is 20 years before that, Disney really was not that place. Yeah. So I brought a book this week. It's called Disney War. It was written by two th- in 2005. And much like Ian's author, um, who, who has a penchant for releasing books just in a nick of time, like when they could not be more culturally relevant, this book came out at a time when it could not have been more culturally relevant um do you want me to read what rock wrote sure or, or ross wrote yeah. we don't know we don't know where you sorry rasio rockio rasio oh it's a she <sighs> it's gotta be rasio it's gotta be rasio women can be named rockio too yes. i mean maybe but i've never heard it but that is not a judge of anything either i've also never met a rasio <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, All right, Rossio writes, uh, Disney is in the public consciousness is the premier family-friendly content-producing company. 
Which is why it's an absolute joy to read a book featuring Disney execs fucking each other over and generally being terrible. And by Disney execs, I mostly mean Michael Eisner. The book is also great for uh, know-how on how some movie production decisions were made up top in Hollywood companies. So what's what's the book about, Joe? Yeah, so this book starts in 1984, about like in the mid-1980s, this book starts. And in the mid-1980s, there was a guy in charge of Disney named Ron Miller, a guy that you've most likely never heard of. I had never heard I've of I've never heard of Ron this. Miller, no. Yeah. Um, Ron Miller was a very middling CEO. There was a little bit of like, it, like I want to say he married one of the Disney daughters, like one of Walt Disney's daughters. He was like a son-in-law coming into Smart. this. This guy knows how to get to the top of corporate. (laughs) You can either be really good at your job, really good at getting promoted, or marry the boss's daughter. Those are three ways to get put in charge of a... And Disney's... It's doing a terrible job, right? Like, the only division of Disney that makes any money at all is the theme parks. The theme parks make money. Like, they make quite a bit of money. Like, they float all of the animation stuff, but they... but. It's the only profitable division. But there's no Lion King. There's no, no. all of these things that we grew up with. Yet. No, at the time, Disney in the 1980s, Disney animation was releasing movies like The Black Cauldron, which has just fallen <laughs> just into Just all the, those old racist ones. Yeah, like all <laughs> these movies. Like, or, or like or like nightmare <laughs> inducing. Yeah, like these movies that you see when you're a little kid and you're like, what is this? Like, I hate this. <laughs> that they've, I think, they, they've systematically like deleted from all existence in the internet and yeah these ones don't get released from the disney vault once every five years (laughs) there's a reason there's a vault (laughs) (laughs) some stuff does not come out of that vault yeah so disney's struggling a guy named michael eisner comes in as ceo actually two guys come in i'm sorry um a guy named michael eisner and a guy named jeffrey wells and they are respectively a couple of guys from other places who are really good at their jobs. Michael Eisner is, I believe, at Paramount before this, has led Paramount to like crazy profitability and not just profitability, but like has led them to a string of um, commercial and artistic successes and specifically in like their movie television, like uh, sorts of things. So it's like, hey, Mm -hmm. this guy doesn't just make money. This guy releases good movies. He understands what we want to understand at Disney, which is creativity and quality is the engine that drives the product. So does this book talk about at what point Disney stops trying for creativity and quality? Um, about, yeah, about, it basically about 20, 2018. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll get to so it. We got some time. Oh, oh, we get to it. Good. Good. Yeah, we get to it. So Eisner and Wells come in. They are instated as um, a little bit of corporate structure here. The CEO and the president mm-hmm. of the company. Do you have an org chart that we can share on social media? Joe? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Mm, I'll send it to you. Right. It's quite, um, it's quite complex. <laughs> But what you need to know about the org chart, though, is that Michael Eisner is at the top of it, right? right. He's, he's at the, the top of it. Yeah, he's in yeah. charge. He's in charge. Yeah. He's the boss. So it's the it's the Mike show. And is that what this book is about? Is his rise to uh, how much of this is this? Um, who's the hero in this book? Is it Disney? It's got to be Disney. Is it Michael? OK, so it's neither of those things. Um, if If there is a hero in this book, it's a guy named Roy Disney Jr. So I guess it is Disney, Nick. You got it. It's Disney. This strikes me as like um this I don't know. Okay. Well, here's a 
here's an unpopular opinion. Uh-huh. I didn't Let's think, hear it. I didn't think Barbie was that great because it was really <laughs> hard for me to get past the fact that it's like a corporation endorsing this. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm, it's it, it felt like a really good advertisement. It's so and I just I felt I feel like all these corporate companies now are getting so big and they and, and I can't think of another word, but this is the only one I could think of. They're like cucking themselves into the story. They're like, oh, yeah. don't you want to make fun of us? Aren't we the worst? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now yeah, yeah, give yeah, us yeah, your yeah, billion yeah. dollars to watch our like, movie. Um, it's, it's like, what it's, the it's, fuck? It's like when your principal does the dunk tank at the, at the school <laughs> fundraiser, right? Like it's, like, it's like, hey, guys, do you want to stick it to the man? Here's oh, this dunk tank that makes yeah. fun of the principal. By consenting yes. to that, you know it's not. You're not really sticking it to the man. No, right. of course not. Like, <laughs> he's, okay, he's well, this will make this. you feel a little bit better about this book, Nick. I am sure Mattel is very happy that the Barbie movie exists. When this book came out in 2005, there is no way that Disney was happy about it. <laughs> like, this book yeah. makes Disney look terrible. It makes it look incompetent. It makes Tell it look us about corrupt. It. Okay. So... These guys come in. So, so like it, the guys that I just listed, uh, specifically Eisner, he's going to be the villain of this story, right? Like he is in charge of Disney for 20 years from 1985 till 2005. And he's he's the bad guy, right? He's the baddie, um, which is kind of surprising because he comes in as a golden boy. Mm-hmm. If there's a good guy in this story, it's Roy Disney. Roy Disney is like. He's the son of Roy Disney Sr., who is one of the founders of Walt Disney. He is Walt Disney's nephew. And he's like this guy. He's like 50 years old or so when when this book starts. Um, And he like has been kicking around Disney. They've been giving him different jobs. They've been putting him in charge of different things. And when he comes in, he oversees the animation department, which, Mm -hmm. as you remember, is doing terribly at the time. Right. Is this kind of like, is the Disney family at this point uh, kind of like this inbred uh, type of um, <laughs> type of like ruler? Uh, like, is this basically like the, um, you know, the British uh, monarchy? Uh, not necessarily inbred, but it's definitely, it's, it's not necessarily inbred, but it's definitely a Disney family that is a generation or two removed from their, from their prowess, from the ones that made the Disney company great. But like um, everybody in charge is a Disney family member almost right well everybody in charge is like disney adjacent at the beginning of this and then like throughout these 20 years it really shifts away from that like it moves away we're we're gonna like um, right you see this in silicon valley when like there'll be a startup and then eventually like it they're like money comes in and they're like hey we just gave you 50 billion dollars 24 year olds cannot be in charge of this company anymore. Right. right? Like we're going right. to put adults in charge of it. Right. This is right. kind of like Michael Eisner and Wells are, and Frank Wells are kind of the adults being put in charge of Disney after a couple of uh, generations of dilution at this point. Transition from a family business really to yeah. what's going to become a multi a, a, a corporate behemoth. We have a view of Disney, right? Like, like, like Disney is no matter how jaded we are about their, their many acquisitions now, like Disney is a part of your childhood, 
Like you grew up with Disney media in your life. You grew up with emotional relationships to Disney characters in your life. Disney is the most magical place on earth, right? This book basically details how Disney, the company rose to be the company that can churn out a string of artistic and commercial successes like that while simultaneously under the hood being deeply, deeply Interesting. flawed. Right. Interesting. So it's not just it's not it's not just that they were they were being successful. It's that there's kind of this contradiction. How could how could a a company that looked so good, in fact, be so broken? Well, and this author, like if you're going to believe his his thesis here is how can they be so successful? Not not while things are going poorly, but in spite of a bumbling CEO. Like Ian, you said, you know, um, most people in charge of big decisions on Wall Street are idiots. One of the theses of this book is the guy in charge of Disney for those 20 years is an idiot. Michael Eisner? Michael Eisner. Like he is an idiot. He is bad at his job. Disney's success is in spite of his efforts. And by the way, he has gotten massively wealthy on the back of Disney's success and at the cost of shareholders, at the cost of all these things. Okay, so Joe, can you get a little bit more specific here? What what is this book? doing what what's so what's give us an example yep absolutely um this book we get a a ton of characters in this book i absolutely cannot go into all of them because one of the things that happens over and over in this book it uh, it kind of is the same um you know each act kind of rhymes with the one that came before it the story of this book over and over is michael eisner has some sort of partner some sort of creative partner that he's working with inside of the company that creative partner is really good at their job. At the beginning of this, it's a guy named Frank Wells, the one that he came into Disney with. Frank Wells is the guy that kind of like, like Frank Wells is really good at his job. Eisner starts to turn against Frank Wells, like starts to get like jealous of him, starts to get a little vindictive, starts to like take a little bit of power away from Frank Wells and put more and more power, more and more like under Eisner's oversight. And then Frank Wells dies, not related to Michael Eisner in a separate, like Michael Eisner does not kill Frank Wells, right? Illness kills Frank Wells. Okay. Then there's a guy named Jeffrey Katzenberg who you might have heard of before. Jeffrey Mm -hmm. Katzenberg is a... He's a high energy dude. He starts overseeing Disney's animation department. At the time he comes in, they lure him. Um, this this is a great detail. He's like, hey, I want to come to Disney. How about some like stock incentive or whatever? And they're like, well, we can't give you a lot of stock, but how about this? Anything that you produce, right? Like overseeing the animation department, we'll give you 5% of profits on. Oh my right? God. 5% of profits. At the time, That's a Disney large is, percentage. Oh, oh my yeah. goodness. At the time, Disney is releasing things like The Black Cauldron, which make no money whatsoever, right? Eisner's, or, um, so it's, this is another, this is another bet. This yes. is a bet, right? Oh. This is, this is them saying, we think we're not going to pay through the nose for this. And mm-hmm. these people who are getting these deals say, we think we can turn it around. Yeah, we think we are. Are yep. you saying this basically this entire book is we've collected some of the best animators, creatives yes. in the yes. world, and they are producing these incredible stories despite the corporate side of this constantly imploding and and, yes. and what it seems like should be an unsuccessful uh, uh, unsuccessful venture, but is yes. somehow seeing success. 
Yeah, that's that's exactly what this book is. Let me tell you about this other brilliant person that Michael Eisner is going to alienate and eventually fire. Let me tell you about this brilliant person that Michael Eisner that voted against Michael Eisner at a board meeting. And now Michael Eisner is going to declare all out war on like, let me. I mean, so they didn't like this book when it was released. That's what you said. I mean, but but ultimately, I mean, they're winning. Right? How yeah, could they not okay. like this? So wow. he can't be that wrong. Like it's it's hit after hit after hit. That's one of the weird things about this book is like this book. When you read this, like you kind of hate Michael Eisner. You're like he's an idiot. He's a bully. Yeah. He's bad at his job. He alienates talented people. Um, by the way, Jeffrey Katzenberg, after overseeing um, like that string of hits that I just talked about, The Little Mermaid. The Lion King, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast. He would go off to found DreamWorks, um, which was like yeah. its own thing, and, and both with some some good, some bad over there. Right? <laughs> um, he would then go back. Let's just say to, it's not a DreamWorks episode. <laughs> when <laughs> when he left, though. Um, Disney was like Michael Eisner was like, uh, yeah, we never agreed to pay you five percent. Of, of oh. your things, right? We never did. And he's like, ah, I'm pretty sure you did. I you have never a contract. Written down. And they were like, yeah, you're you're misinterpreting your contract. Mm, he would go on, Jeffrey Katzenberg would go on to sue Disney. He would initially claim that he was owed over a billion dollars, which was a little bit of inflation, you know, based on, oh, you know, well, yeah, you're going to get a percentage suit yeah. we're bringing. Um, and he would settle for something like $280 million um, that Disney owed him, which was 5% of their profits on those things. You know, DreamWorks has a very strange mix of movies that they've made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, okay, they made Puss in Boots mm-hmm. and then they also made Green Book. <laughs> yeah, so D- DreamWorks, we, we can't get into DreamWorks here, but you're absolutely right. Like, it's been really hit and miss. And Lincoln and Bridge of Spies and Shrek. I think we think of DreamWorks <laughs> now as like kind of a joke, kind of like the thing that wants to be Pixar is I think what we often compare DreamWorks to. <laughs> right. Like, oh, they wish they were Pixar. But keep in mind at the time, like, you know, Shrek has turned into a little bit of a cultural meme. Shrek was a big deal. When it Shrek came out, like huge. people freaking loved Shrek. Like the second Shrek Let's made a billion dollars. Now, well, well, we no, did it's not, many, we many did years ago on this very ago. podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, was, it was, Joe, yeah. anything else here? I mean, what, did you like this? It, this book is gripping is what I would say. Maybe that's what Ian said about his book, gripping. This book was an absolute page turner as I read it. Um, at first, when I looked at it this week, like, we have a week to read these books. This is a 600 page book about corporate drama. Right. I thought it was going to be a I'm bit of a not gonna finish this. Mm-hmm. It was so, so, so readable, right? Like that was one thing that I really liked about it. One of the weird things about it, as you kind of point out, Nick is, Hey, I mean, Eisner was in charge of this company. Like, and sure it can make him look like a bumbling idiot. He couldn't have been doing that bad of a job though. Like, he couldn't have been doing that bad of a job. Who wrote this? Yeah, the guy that wrote this is a guy named James B. Stewart. Um, he's he's a journalist. He's a book writer. He, um, he describes himself, well, his author profile describes him as a muckraker, which actually I think sounds kind of gross. Like, if you call yourself that, I think you're kind of a D-bag. But, uh, no. but like he, other people have to call you that. Other people have to call you a muckraker. That's exactly it. But he, like, writes kind of corporate um, exposés. Like, that's okay. the type of book that he That's writes. his shtick, huh? There's a lot of proper nouns in this book. And this book can be really dense and challenging to follow because it's like, here's a new name. Here's a new name. Here's a new name. 
but because it's set against the background of a world that you intuitively know, like a world that you understand, because like they're like, hey, let me tell you about these names and let me tell you about what a disaster the the creation right. of the Little Mermaid was. And let me yeah, tell you about these specific scenes. You're interested. So it's against a background that makes it super easy to understand. Gentlemen, welcome to Tiffany's uh, safe place for you to tell me all the terrible things about your books. Um, I'm guessing the terrible parts are the subject of these books, uh, <laughs> the content. To some extent. Well, uh, yeah. uh, Joseph, tell me something bad about this book. This book's pretty interesting, but you touched on it where it was like, how bad could it really have been? Like Disney's churning out a string of success is clearly something is working here. And something that came to mind, this book is like, uh, I should say here that um, James B. Stewart had tremendous access at the time. Like he was essentially embedded in Disney when he was writing this book. However, when you look at his source material versus what appears in the book itself, there's some tonal shifts. And I just want to break something down for you. Like, like give you two examples really quick. Make it two examples. Yep, I'm going to be super quick. When Eisner and Wells started the same day, they're replacing that son-in-law of, of uh, Walt Disney. Yes, the inbred right? son-in-law. They share an office together, right? The way that um, it's written about in this book is Eisner and Wells chatted briefly as well scan their new surroundings, but Wells showed no sign of getting up from his chair. Are we going to sit here together? Eisner finally asked. Wells shrugged. I thought we would. I can't work that way, Eisner said. So Wells just moved to a conference room next door. That's how it's written in here, right? Makes Wells sound, or makes Eisner sound brusque, makes Eisner sound uncompromising, etc. The original passage Uh-oh. from from Eisner's autobiography. Memoir, now, granted, Eisner's autobiography, sure. autobiography and memoir relates it as this. Frank, I asked, are we going to sit here together? Well, yeah, he said. I thought we would. I was amused by his utter lack of guile, but I knew that such an arrangement wasn't ideal. Look, I said, seeing a graceful solution, I can't work that way. What I'm going to do is is um, have the what am I going to do when I have to discipline one of my sons or argue with Jane about something? Why don't you take this office and I'll find another place to sit? No, no, he said and jumped up. You stay here. Those are two different tellings of the exact same moment that are tonally super different from each other. <laughs> <Yeah>. Interesting. <laughs> and. When you read that, it's like, oh, how much, how bad is Eisner, really? Well, uh, are you saying he also he might have lied in his own autobiography? Right. It's so hard. (laughs) Maybe, maybe, or maybe he's just, he, he's uh, tone deaf. Maybe Mm -hmm. he's interpreting this situation and perhaps many other situations as like, like, I'm just being, I'm just, I'm just being this nice avuncular fellow. And in Mm -hmm. fact, um, everyone else is. Oh my gosh, Michael, lay off, please. Right. Maybe he just has uh, no self-awareness or he's a liar yeah, no, or no they're all liars or yeah, who knows? So yeah, I mean, I think, I feel like with any of these exposés, like it's again, it's that, like that liberty of like, you have to take yes. the author to make it a good yes. story. You have to trust the author at some level. You're seeing this through the lens of an author. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and who knows what the real story is. Uh, yep. So Ian. Uh, mine is that I I feel like I say this a lot in order to understand what's going on in this book he has to introduce some things and I would say the first couple chapters you're like oh boy but he figured it it comes it washes out pretty smoothly so eventually if you ask me what a mezzanine CDO is I could probably kind of tell you 
Um, you gotta trust him. I say this a lot. Like this book asks uh, a fair amount of you. Uh, and if you trust him again, trust, there it is. If you bet that, uh, your investment of time will pay off, I think it absolutely does, but it's an investment. Mm-hmm, there is some mm-hmm. outlay. All right. That's enough. Um, <laughs> these both sound like very, uh, good, like really good news articles, like really, <laughs> really good articles, uh, but uh, kind of made more dramatic. Uh, Ian, you lose. I've seen the movie. I think again. just watch the movie, Litheads. Uh, again, Unjust. that's right. Unjust. Don't. Just Unjust. watch the movie, Litheads. Nick is off base here. Litheads, listen Joe. to me. Nick is, Nick is wrong mm. in this regard. There is no way a two-hour comedy drama starring Steve Carell could get you a comedy could get you what this book gets you and christian Bale. Nick is and wrong. adam mckay the great adam McKay, uh Ian as usual has not seen the movie so but <laughs> <laughs> heads if you would like to support the podcast you can uh like and subscribe on pop podcast players of your choice you can leave us reviews those are always nice to read um you can uh recommend us to your bookish friends and if you want to be involved as rossio was this week you can recommend Thank books you, at our website www.youdontknowlitpodcast.com where you can also request stickers and suggest themes for us. All right. I've got a little bit from the epilogue of this, um, which really serves as the thesis of, of it's a weird spot for the thesis. Put it, put it up front. Put it up front, right? Um, epilogue. Uh, this by, book, by the way, was published after Eisner was um, reprimanded by voters, uh, but had not totally exited the company. No matter when or how Michael Eisner leaves Disney, even if he's carried out on a shield, as Stanley Gold predicted, nothing will erase his record of extraordinary achievement. There are many animated hits destined to be classics. The excessive film library, the extensive film library, which grew from 158 to 900 theatrical releases during Eisner's tenure, the 140 Academy Awards, the acquisition of ABC, the explosive growth of the cable channels, especially ESPN, and the Disney Channel, the Broadway shows, the restored New Amsterdam Theater, the acclaimed architecture at the theme parks, and and Disney's Burbank headquarters— Despite Roy's quibbles about maintenance and cleanliness standards at Disneyland and Disney World, the strong and unique culture of the theme parks endures. So does the Disney brand, even though Roy finds the notion of branding to be distasteful, uh, so does the Disney brand, even though Roy finds the notion of branding to be distasteful. Indeed, the Disney brand is so strong that it's often a constraint, despite Disney's efforts to keep to develop independent brands under the Disney umbrella. Nor has Eisner been on a mission to impose traditional Disney values on the nation's culture. Disney during the Eisner years has tried to produce entertainment products that sell, and so and to do so has been willing to push the limits of the Disney brand. As Eisner put it in his film manifesto, we have no obligation to make art. We have no obligation to make a statement. Disney is as much a mirror of American culture as it is an influence on it. Eisner can also boast of a remarkable financial record. When Eisner arrived in 84, Disney's operating income was $100 million. For 2004, it was $4.5 billion. Revenue was $1.6 billion. In 2004, $30 billion. Adjusted for splits, the stock price, etc., etc., etc. But there's no denying that the seeds of Disney's creative and financial renaissance were all planted in the earliest years of Eisner's tenure. Stanley Gold and Roy Disney are also correct that by nearly every financial measure, Disney's performance since 1995 has been weak. 
Well, Disney stock price climbed to $28 in 2004. It was $42 as recently as 2000. And even Eisner's vaunted creativity, clearly a tribute that he himself holds most dear, seems to have been an eclipse. There have been some recent successes like Pirates of the Caribbean, but even there, Eisner criticized Johnny Depp's teeth and his, effe- his effeminate demeanor. The animation unit has been devastated and is a shadow of his former self, overshadowed by rivals Pixar and DreamWorks. The film studio has never again duplicated the string it had during the early years under Eisner and Katzenberg. Eisner dismissed Finding Nemo and Disney sold off most of the rights to The Sixth Sense. Eisner criticized Lost, ABC's first breakout hit in years. Although he insists on being judged only by what he has done and not what he has failed to do, the hit projects he rejected from CSI to Lord of the Rings to Fahrenheit 9-11 loom large. (laughs) 